This is episode 1122 of the Talk and Audio podcast. My name is Matt Robinson. Thank you all for checking out the show. Happy you uh, dropped by today. We got a great episode for you. We're going to talk to Nick Ashbourne, a Blue Jays contributor for Sportsnet and Yahoo, of course, co-hosts the Blue Jays Happy Hour podcast with our buddy Andrew Stoughton. And uh, got a few things to talk to him about, including uh, a piece that he did for Toronto Verse on some of the best patios and summer craft beers around Toronto. Uh, we have a lot of listeners down in that part of the world, obviously, so I'm sure many of you will find that useful. You'll want to check it out. We will link to the article in the show notes. Uh, and uh, of course, we'll talk some Blue Jays with Nick as well as Ah, they've taken two out of three from Minnesota, but so far it doesn't really seem to have settled down the fan base a whole lot. There's some things to be a little concerned about. We'll get into all of that with Nick. Uh, we're on social media at Tall Can Audio. Give us a follow there. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, whether you use Spotify, Apple Pods, Google Podcasts, uh, Overcast, wherever you are, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. We'll make sure we keep the good stuff coming for you. I believe our buddy Steve Bunda is going to be back in here on Thursday morning. Uh, if you want to talk a little Raptors, a little Jamal Murray and the Denver Nuggets, and whether they've become Canada's team in the NBA playoffs here as they get set for the finals, uh, you can do that with our buddy Matty Lang. That was episode 1,121. All kinds of great stuff up on the podcast right now, so make sure you uh, you stick around to join us. With all that out of the way, let's get to it. As mentioned, a guy who covers the Toronto Blue Jays for Sportsnet and for Yahoo, uh, Nick Ashbourne is here. How's it going tonight, man? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming back. appreciate you doing this again. Uh, we're going to talk a little baseball, of course. You've written some interesting things here over the last couple of days, but I want to start in a different uh, in a different area. The last time you were on, I believe, uh, was with Stoughton, and you had just written something for, uh, for Torontoverse that was... Uh, winter beers, winter stouts, good breweries around Toronto to visit uh, during that time of year. And I asked you at the time whether or not this would have to become a, a seasonal thing. And it turns out it has. You've recently written another piece for Toronto Verse this on, you know, some uh, some patios and, and good summer beers. I'm curious, man. I want to start here. I want to ask you, because I know you're a serious journalist, what does the research process for this look like? Are these experiences you've already gathered, or do you have to go out to all these different patios and sit down and have something, take some notes, man? Tell, walk me through the process. It's, uh, no, I have to do some real journalism here. I'm not, uh, I'm not just hearkening back to some memories of drinking <laughs> beers and writing off that. Um, so each of these pieces, you, you know, there were both six breweries that I specifically recommended, but I visited a lot more than that. And in both cases, I kind of I, I broke it up into a couple of different outings. So I did sort of a, an east side and a west side outing for both of them. Uh, I forget the exact number of breweries I visited, but it was in the teens. Like there's uh, for each one, I think. So there's plenty of breweries <laughs> that I visited that did not make the cut. Uh, the ones that were on the list are, you know, they're, those are the best of the best. This is me doing... Yeah, this is me doing my journalism. So I, I try to take it as seriously as the subject matter will allow. Of course. Uh, I will admit that, uh, you know, a little later in some of those journeys, the notes might have been slightly <laughs> less detailed, slightly less legible. But uh, but they, they did continue. There were there were notes even from the end of some of those voyages. Well, we appreciate the sacrifice, man, the heavy lifting you've done on this subject. It is important work, so I'm glad you did it. Um, walk us through sort of some of the results. Like you said, you, you did land on six uh, breweries specifically that had nice patio areas and, and good summer beers. When you're doing this, is it... 
you know, does one counterbalance the other? Did it have to have a great summer beer and a great patio? Or, you know, what was the scale like in balancing the two here? Um, I'm willing to be a little bit of a little bit forgiving on one side of the equation or the other. If there's a place where I feel like a lot of conviction about the beer and the patio isn't the most amazing place ever, then as long as they had one and it was it was fine. There were there are a couple that made the list I think that fit that category, like Muddy York, for instance. Mm-hmm. I thought that had fantastic beer. Um, the patio itself was you know fairly normal picnic table gravel. Uh, you know, it's kind of tucked away in East York. It's not like some beautiful view from there by any means. Right. Uh, where some of the patios are a little bit, a little bit more impressive. Like Bandit Brewery is an example of a place that has a really beautiful patio that they recently remade. Um, but you know, in, in an ideal world, you get the best of both. And one that sort of stands out to me, maybe my favorite on this most recent list, is Salter Street. And uh, I was introduced to Salter Street a couple years back. And I, I just feel like it's one of those ones that people don't talk about, people don't know about. I, like I, I've gone there fairly frequently now, and it's never super busy. It's kind of tucked away a little bit south of Queen Street uh, near Broadview. And uh, yeah, I think that they're they're really mar- marrying um, having an impressive, fun patio, and then also having a really cool selection of stuff there. It's hard, eh? Because like you know, I'm based in Ottawa, and two, my two maybe favorite breweries in Ottawa. You know the beers are fantastic. the The vibe inside the place is great, but the patio situation is pretty lackluster. They're both sitting in like industrial parks, and like there's not a lot to look at. I think a lot of these breweries, when you start up, your first consideration is, you know, where can I get a nice deal on a piece of property? Where can I do the work I'm trying to do? And then it's not really until later that you start thinking about the patio side of it. It's like I said, the Nita Beer Company and the Vimy Brewery here in Ottawa. Uh, both fantastic breweries, but you know you're sort of sitting in the middle of a parking lot if you want to enjoy a beer outside. Yeah, and and that's the way to do it, right? Like your first consideration should be the quality of the product you're putting out, and it's easy for us as the consumer to think of the brewery as almost like a restaurant or bar that you go to, and it serves that, but that is its secondary function. Sure. Like most of the time, these guys are trying to make beer that they're selling you know, through beer store, through LCBO, um, you know, getting it in local bars. And so they're trying to find a functional space. And sometimes a functional space that let, that fits their needs is not necessarily one that's beautiful. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of them do a good job of kind of making the best of what they have. And mm-hmm. I think people sometimes like that quasi-industrial look sure. at times. And they're willing to, you know, kind of forgive that if it's got high ceilings and big space. Uh, and, you know, sitting in a, a back, you know, like you said, kind of in the parking lot sometimes is where some of these patios yes. are. Henderson's uh, was on my list. And it's a little bit like that. Like it is a, um, a into the back uh, parking lot. But I really liked it because there's the train tracks right there and the walking path and the trains go by. And it's, it's just like a little bit different than that normally is. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, sometimes they've just got to make the most of what they've got. And, yeah, I understand that some of the places I like best in terms of the quality of their product is not necessarily a beautiful setting. And, right. you know, they they end up using what they can get, what they can afford, and that's got to be priority number one. 100%. And so uh, we will share the link to that in the show notes here. Uh, wherever you're listening, you can check that out and, and read up on uh, some of the places you should be checking out around Toronto this summer. Uh, you mentioned Salter Street. You mentioned Muddy York. Uh, as breweries by name, is there a beer or two while you were out and and kind of, uh, you know, laying down the research here that you've walked away with saying, I will definitely be back looking for that this summer? 
It's funny because it's not it's not in the piece itself because I was trying to I was very regimented in going for loggers and pilsners because that was kind of the assignment. But my natural inclination is is to go a little bit darker, and I like you know sometimes dark lagers and you know darker beer. Even in the summer, yeah, you don't want to pour down a Guinness by any means. <laughs> but uh, Salter Street has uh, a tropical stout, I believe they call it. Uh, I forget what the exact name on it is, and that's a beer that is a little bit darker, but you can drink it outside in the summer for sure without getting bogged down, and I think that that's a really special uh, brew. So if you're at Salter Street, uh, I recommend it. I believe it was their Pilsner, which is very good as well, mm-hmm. but uh, take a look if they're pouring the Tropical Stout because that's good all year round. Okay, I so see you're speaking my language here. I'm very much a dark beer guy as well. Like It's, it's always stout season in my world, but... Um I just picked up, it's funny you say that, I was over this past weekend at the Fenland Falls Brewing Company up in Cottage Country there, and they had something uh, there called their uh, their Tropical Stout, which I've never tried before. I've got it in my fridge now waiting for, uh, probably for next weekend though. So uh, a couple of people apparently experimenting with the Tropical Stouts. Will we be seeing this again in the fall? Is there an, enough to do? Is there an autumn style of beer that we can see circling back around to? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can sell enough uh, pumpkin beers around or there's a particular setting for that. I might be out of uh, runway on this sort of exact format, but you know, it's it's been cool to do this and it, you know, it is it is I'm not breaking any molds by being a baseball and sports writer who's interested in beers, but um taking a step into this world has it has been fun to spread my wings a little bit and I am going to be doing some more writing for Toronto verse non sports edition mm-hmm. uh but it's not necessarily going to be breweries but maybe at some point in the future uh there will be an opportunity and I'll I'll definitely jump on that but I'm I'm not done with my you know things around Toronto I like kind of writing we'll okay. say that but yeah. it's not the next thing's not necessarily going to be breweries um I assume before you're handed this assignment, you're already a craft beer guy. How long have you kind of been into that scene? Uh, I mean, the easy answer, I think, is as long as I could afford it. Yeah. I think when I was uh, <laughs> first out of school, you know, and you, we had a lot of, you have a lot of financial limitations. Yep. And, you know, the media business, especially when you're first getting started, is not necessarily a lucrative one. So it's something that I'd been interested in. And, you know, I come from a family and a, I have a dad who's he's definitely interested in craft beers and things like that. And so... Uh, I knew that I was intrigued by that world, but I wasn't really able to come into that world until a little bit later when I got a little bit more established in my career. But so, yeah, I don't know. I'd say maybe six or seven years of being, you know, I, I don't know what quasi serious means, but yeah. uh, I enjoy and sometimes I kind of putter around and try and see some stuff. And if I'm traveling uh, I'm definitely looking out for what the breweries are wherever I'm at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, some places are better for that than others, definitely. But uh, I'm, you generally come away impressed. Like, it, it is a scene that has exploded, uh, you know, especially around North America in the last decade or so. And it seems like there's always something interesting to check out whenever you're you know, in another city in Canada or the U.S. in particular. Yeah, when like when we started this podcast in 2015... Um, we'd sit down and have a pint while we were recording, but it was mostly imports at the time and, and just, you know, didn't really know a whole lot about the craft world, whatever. It was sort of 2016 where that became a bit of a focus and we got lucky. Like we were late to the party, no doubt, but that was sort of at the time that it was exploding, right? There suddenly were breweries popping up in every little town you visited. Um, and we're 
I don't know, uh, just over a thousand episodes into the show now. And I would never say we haven't repeated beers because we obviously have, but not as much as you'd think, right? Uh, you got guests coming in who are bringing different things from places they've been. Breweries are always doing different seasonal uh, stuff that's new and turning over their lineups. So from across Ontario or across Canada, when people travel, like I said, they're bringing stuff back for you. So it's fascinating, man, that we've just never come close to running out of beers. Every time you walk into an LCBO or one of your favorite breweries, you're like, oh, that's new. I haven't tried that one before. It just, it's kind of more fun, right? You just kind of, it's its a hobby now as much as anything else that, well, let's see what that one's all about. It, it, it kind of just becomes, you're like anybody else sitting down having a beer on Saturday night, but it's probably going to be something different every weekend. Yeah, and I think one thing that's helped me in particular uh, get into the world, you know, a little bit more than just on a, you know, a casual level has been a lot of these beer festivals that roll through town or roll through local towns. I mean, I was actually at one on, um, Saturday, pretty low scale one at, at Henderson's actually, it was called oh, under yeah. the big top, I think. And I don't know how many breweries they would have had there, something like 12, but if you have 12 breweries and they're all bringing three or four beers, like suddenly, you know, there's mm-hmm. 48 beers there and maybe you've had 11 of them in the past, but there's tons to explore. And there was a few around at round, they had roundhouse uh, craft beer fest, which is basically down by, I was going to say the sky dome. I think we can say Roger center at this point um, <laughs> at steam whistle. And they've done that a winter and a summer edition of that for a few years. And that's one of the first events quite a long time ago that I remember going to and really sort of taking mental notes and being like, oh, these are breweries I like. These are breweries that I've never really been particularly impressed. So then the next time around, you know who to visit. And uh, that's a good way to get into it where, yeah, you're going to spend some money to get a ticket. It's probably not the most cost efficient way uh, to have some (laughs) beers for sure. But it's not like an LCBO where if you see a beer that's interesting, it's like, oh, well, that tall can is, you know, 375 and I don't really have any idea if I'm going to like it or not. Um, it is efficient in the sense that you can, uh, really try quite a few things and that's been helpful for learning more about it. Sure. Yeah. And like you said, they're always, you know, putting out flights, you can sample a little bit. There's a thing, I'm sure they have an equivalent in Toronto, maybe a different name or whatever, but in Ottawa, it's called, uh, uh, brew donkey. And it's like a tour group where you get on a bus and they go to different kind of three breweries, four breweries, and they'll hand you a flight and you can then buy more of whatever you like to take with you if you want. And then it's back on the bus and on to the next one. Um, you know, so just different ways of, of exploring that. It's it's a kind of a cool world. I I did want to obviously talk to you about the uh, the Blue Jays. You released a, or put out a new piece today for, for Yahoo that was... Uh, I thought pretty interesting in the sense that it's sort of, uh, we're at an interesting point here, about a third of the way through the season, where you got to almost wonder, I'll I'll turn it over to you, Is is it time to be concerned about the Blue Jays, is it worried, is it panicked, like what is the, 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 the appropriate word as... They're okay. They're a couple games over 500. There's still a reasonable chance they can get back in. And, and, you know, Jays fans can lament all they want being in any other division. um, The fact that they would not be in fifth place right now. But, you know, as they try and chase down what almost certainly has to be a wild card spot. Now, how, how concerned should Blue Jays fans be right now? Yeah, I think it's a little bit about accepting the reality such that it is like yes we're only a third of the way through the season but as you know you even said it when you're kind of couching your words there like essentially you're chasing down what basically has to be a wild card Mm -hmm. at this point 
Um, and that's not, you know, in some years, you can come out of the gate and be two games over 500 at the third pole, and you can still be very much in the mix for the uh, division title. In fact, you could probably argue that in most years, that wouldn't be enough to put you sort of out of it. But right. the Rays have just been absurdly good. And the math on it, you know, it's kind of like when the Yankees last year, they came out uh, of the gate at an incredible clip and they weren't able to keep that going through the rest of the year, but it didn't really matter because they banked so many wins. Yeah, once and you we could argue pocket, like, it's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you could argue like how good are the Rays, but to a, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter. Like they, they have gotten this massive advantage. And so what that piece was largely about is just, you know, the expectations for this year was that this team was going to be altered. It was, uh, oh, we've done the, you know, we've had this basic core for the last three years and we've never won a playoff game and we're winning. We, you know, we're kind of know what percentage of the games we're winning, like low 90s, and we need to shake things up. We need to get some lefties in the lineup because that's a bit of a weakness that we don't have balance. We need to play better defense. We need to. Uh, we'll get another guy for the bullpen. We need to run the bases better. And some of that has come through. But at the end of the day, it just at this point, you're kind of fighting to get back to that spot where you started. Like it, it's not even a, it's not a sure thing that they can get low 90s wins this year. And I'm not it's not off the table by any means. Right. But it's just like the reality has changed so much in these uh, these games in this third of the season that the whole kind of mission statement for 2023 is already a little bit by the wayside. And so now the game plan is just try and fight your way back, try and earn a wild card spot, which even that is, you know, by no means a guarantee, uh, and then see what happens. And so after a couple of years of let's kind of hope we can make the playoffs and see what happens, it's like here we are again, even though it's a very different team stylistically. One of the things I thought was interesting that you pointed out in your pieces, and and like the other one there, we'll we'll share it in the uh, in the show notes. But you mentioned that most of what they've brought in has has worked, has been successful. Belt got off to a dreadful start, but has been largely fine ever since. Uh, Swanson has been good. Varsho has been everything he's been advertised to be defensively. There's some questions offensively left to be answered, but you had those. Um, beforehand Bassett has been very good it's guys that you already had in-house that maybe are struggling more than than you would have expected you know Vladdy from a normal human being is having a good year but maybe not a Vladdy here that you would have expected Manoa certainly isn't uh, having the year that most of us would have predicted he'd have you know what is sort of your takeaway on some of these core guys is, is the reason to be uh, worried is are these things you know based on what you're seeing is the reason to believe they will kind of come back to form or is there a reason to think that we've sort of overestimated what they are yeah I, Mano is an interesting case to start with just because his you know the gap between what we thought he would be and what he's been is the largest mm-hmm. like even though Vladdy hasn't quite been what you would hope and he's in the middle of a nasty slump like sure. this particular second so as we talk about it I think it's easy to be down on Vladdy right now. And the strikeouts are a little bit concerning because they're very atypical of him. Even when he's struggling, he's often struggling by pounding the ball into the dirt, not necessarily by whiffing. Um, But Manoa, Manoa is tough because, you know, the, the literal arsenal, like the stuff he is throwing, the velocity of the fastball, the movement of the slider, like it just 
isn't as good. So it's very hard for me to say, oh, Manoa is going to turn it around any day now because there's nothing that he's doing that makes me believe that that's going to happen. And it's not to say that he can't find you know, a mechanical tweak or whether it's you know a lot of people have hypothesized about the pitch clock and how he's adjusting to it. Maybe there's something he finds mentally that helps him adjust and it just everything clicks for him. Sure, that could happen, but there's nothing I'm seeing today that makes me think that. When I see him today, I see a guy with diminished stuff. And so that, you know, he's very young. He's been very good in the past. There's no reason to believe that he'll never figure it out again. But as long as he's throwing the stuff he is throwing right now, there's not much reason to believe he'll suddenly be as good as he was last year. So that's the biggest concern, I think, for the Blue Jays. Whereas with Vladdy, you know, like the max exit velocity, some of the expected numbers, uh, they they're largely there. Like yes, the strikeouts are concerned right now. Like let's talk in three weeks if this is still happening. It's like okay, now let's really start worrying about Vladdy. But Manoa being the main guy there, he's the one where I'm like I I'm looking for a reason to be optimistic. But at this particular juncture, I have a hard time finding one. Yeah, and I saw a tweet today. You probably saw it as well. It was making its way around. Um, that kind of looked at Vladdy's numbers since he left the game having tweaked his knee and you wonder if he's kind of playing through something whether a couple days off might help him or uh I you know I I haven't delved into it nor would I be capable of doing so to to say whether or not it perfectly lines up but do you think there's just a chance that this slump is you know he's he's battling through something with that knee or is it for you does it kind of predate that and there were warning signs already yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that that's a plausible theory. It's always tough to be like, this is the reason why. Like, you can all you can line up a correlation. You can say, since this day, this is what's happened, and we also know around that time he hurt his knee. I don't know. Is that like is that enough evidence to be sure? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Like he, it, it is a fact that he's been very durable for the vast majority of his career, like extremely durable, and they've played him a ton. Like they'll give him a day off to DH, but mm-hmm. like he is in the games day in day out. And this year, there have been a couple of more occasions where he's been unable to go, or he's been like reported working through. So I guess people are working through stuff all the time. Sure, like yeah. they say, "Oh, guys, is not all a hundred percent. It's August. It just is what it is." But there's been a few more occasions where, you know, like that knee you mentioned, there's been things that have come up where, you know, it's been worthy of reporting or the team's not going to, you know, they're not going to sweep it under the rug because it's obvious that he's moving gingerly and things like that. So I'm not, I wouldn't rule that out as an explanation. I wouldn't say that it's 100% sure that that's what it is, but it is clear that Vladdy has had maybe just a little bit more uh, difficult of a season physically than he's had the last couple of years. Uh, what do you see out of the catching position right now? Because one of the things you mentioned in your piece is that that has not looked like it did last year. Maybe it was never going to, right? Whether uh, anyone should have expected Kirk to have another first half like he did last year that landed him in an all-star spot. Um, but now Jansen is back on the uh, on the IL. Um, one of the other things I can remember, we had Dan Schulman on the show a few weeks ago when we spoke to him about was this increased ability for base stealers to get going. And and you've written about that recently as well. And the Rays were running on Toronto like it wasn't an issue at all. They were not afraid to do it. They were just taking off and going. There was very little respect being shown to Toronto's catchers. Uh, the throwing arms were already sort of an issue. And then you add in the ability um, that, that, or the, not the ability, but the fact that steal rates are up across baseball this year. 
how concerning is that for you? Um, the ability, especially once you see a team be that successful at it, does it kind of give other teams the green light to really start testing it and making it an even bigger issue for you? And just in general, um, you know, what are you seeing out of the, the catching position? And is that kind of gone from a strength to a weakness for the Blue Jays at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I, it gets, you know, it's two parts, right? It's offense, defense. Mm-hmm. So on, on offense, I felt like Danny Jansen was really coming around. Like, I, and then and this is kind of the story of Danny Jansen over the last couple of years is that he'll get on a roll and then he'll get some kind of injury. Like he's just, he hasn't been durable in recent seasons. That's not... That's yeah, that's a fact. That's not me disparaging him as sure. a person. He's just he spent a lot of time on the IL. So with him, his offense felt like it was coming around, and you could kind of see the shape of him returning. You know, last year his stats were wild. I'm not sure if he was ever going to replicate that, but you could <laughs> see the shape of what he was going to do returning. With Kirk on offense, you know, he looks a lot like he did at times last year. Like at the very beginning of the season, he couldn't get an extra base hit to save his life. And then in the middle, he really, you know, he was absolutely scorching the ball. And then through the second half, it was a similar thing. It's like he's drawing his walks. He's not striking out. He's got that amazing foundation, but you've got to build on that foundation by hitting the ball, mm-hmm. especially as a guy who, you know, he's not going to get you infield hits. You know what I mean? You know, he's not like Kiermaier who's going to steal hits here and there. Like he, he needs to scorch the ball and he's not doing it. So, you know, you could argue A, We've seen him do this and then turn the corner and start to drive the ball, so we shouldn't be too worried. That's one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Or B, you know, he hasn't hit for any power since kind of like June 2022. So, you know, we're coming up on almost a full year of him doing this. And so if that's the trend, I think that is a little bit troubling because he's got he's got some strong defensive attributes for sure. He can frame the ball. He can block the ball. But he is someone who is special because of his bat and I'm not giving up on the idea that he can drive the ball and have a little bit more power just yet but he you know if we go through all of this season and this never changes and then you're looking at sort of the last you know his last nine months of baseball or his last year and a half of baseball uh, with him having no extra base power then you start to think that that kind of May June 2022 has to be the anomaly because he needs to show it at some point um on defense yeah like they they you you mentioned like they don't have great arms and that's true but they're not disasters and in the past the past couple of years they've been sort of middle of the pack like they haven't it hasn't been a huge problem but it hasn't been um you know it hasn't been great either and then they've gone from that to like you said the rays ran all over them and that's you know i think maybe because they're a little bit more average and uh maybe the margins for them were thinner that's part of it I think for the the pitchers are part of it. Like Manoa has given up 12 stolen bases this season against eight for his entire career prior to this year. So we talked about him adjusting to some of the new rules in baseball. It it feels like that's an adjustment he hasn't made the the way to hold. He doesn't know how to hold runners right now, or maybe he's just not focusing on it because he has so many other things on his plate. Um, There are a few pitchers that need to do a better job of giving their catchers a chance because more often than not, it is the pitchers, not the catchers. Now, yeah. if you've got one of those incredible catchers, they can help even the odds. And, you know, Gabriel Moreno's doing that in Arizona <laughs> right now as we speak. Uh, he was leading last time I checked, maybe not as we record, but last time I checked, he was leading the majors and caught stealing uh, above average, which is a new stat from StatCast. So, 
uh yeah could the jays use gabo moreno right now it definitely <laughs> feels like that um but it's it's too early to render a verdict on that trade right like varsho sure. could have two hot months and he could look like exactly the left-handed bat they've needed we know he's great defensively you know chances are kiermaier leaves after the season and varsho is like the long-term center fielder and that's a really valuable thing so it's easy to make kind of snide remarks about it We'll see how all that plays out. But uh, yeah, they're in a tough situation controlling the run game. And when you have guys, you know, Manoa, again, it's easy to keep pointing to him. But when you have guys like Manoa who don't have a lot of room for error right now, the last thing they can afford is to have, uh, you know, just hurt themselves more by giving up these extra bases. Yeah, you referenced a little while ago that, uh, you know, one of the points in your piece today was, or the big takeaway was this idea of sort of changing um, the mindset or the reputation or, you know, the makeup of this team from being, you know, just all offense and not, they wanted to improve the bullpen and they wanted to be better defensively. And you pointed out that the bullpen numbers, despite Swanson himself being pretty good, aren't all that different than they were last year. And you traded away to Oscar Hernandez to improve. And so while it's unfair to criticize Swanson necessarily specifically, you haven't necessarily upgraded that position is that an area of concern for you is that something that is likely to you know some of those numbers will will sort of settle themselves down as we go or is this another season where we're heading into the deadline with them drastically needing to improve the bullpen if they're going to get back in this yeah i mean again it's interesting the time we have these discussions is always going to color it right because the bullpen's actually coming off a really nice series in minnesota where they played a really big role in in the win and there's some guys that you have confidence in there like Romano's had wobbles but ultimately you have confidence in him Swanson's good you know Nate Pearson has looked pretty good too you know Trevor Richards has actually been sneaky good people don't (laughs) like to admit that uh Tim Mesa but then you've got you know I got this chunk at the back of the bullpen right now like not a lot of people have that much faith in Adam Simber right now which is reasonable Mm -hmm. you know Yumi Garcia yeah, there's a lot of talk prior to the year that this guy had this little velocity boost and you could expect him to be even better after kind of a solid but not amazing year last year. Uh, that has not been the case. Mm-hmm. Anthony Bass, everyone's favorite uh, social oh, media star. Uh, <laughs> he's been brutal, uh, you know, on and off the field, just brutal. So there is a, perhaps it's more so a lack of depth in arms right now. Like there are, I think there are kind of four or five guys they can feel good about right now. But I think, you know, at the deadline, you find yourself wanting to get that one big guy and then you bump everyone down a notch and then you feel better about the situation. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, where are the Blue Jays competitively when that comes along? Because if they are kind of just barely in the mix for a wild card or something, it's hard to envision this, front office really dumping prospects into the problem when they've been you know they the farm system is sort of maybe fine right now would be a potentially generous way to put it and so if this team doesn't you know if it looks kind of like it looks right now are you really going to be feeling like you want to trade some of your top prospects for relief help i i'm reluctant to believe that that's what they'll want to do so last thing for you then nick as we kind of wrap up here you know what is your just sort of gut feel, your confidence level that this team will come down to the end of the season, still contending for a wild card spot. And it is interesting, like, you're going to want to get yourself back in a really good position before those last couple of weeks because it's heavy Rays, heavy Yankees to finish out the season. Are you, you know, just 
by gut, if you were sort of predicting how the rest of this is going to play out, have they overestimated what they have? And, and this team is just going to kind of sputter along at a little bit less than what the, we thought they were? Or is there enough there to believe, yeah, Vladdy's going to figure this out and Manoa's too talented to to continue to struggle all season like this and, and they'll be okay. And, you know, you're one win eight out of 10 streak away from, you know, all these numbers looking different and, and your projections all looking like, what's sort of your feel on this right now? It's interesting because like you said, I think it is about feel right now. Like you could make an intellectual argument for either side. Like the the odds are going to tell you that I think Fangrass had them about 45% to make the playoffs today. So like, yeah, it's not literally 50, but whatever. It's, it's essentially sure. a coin flip in terms of whether this team sort of projects to get where they need to go or not. And I don't find myself feeling as confident about this group as I thought I might. You know, I... The Manoa thing is an issue because, again, I just don't necessarily know how that fixes itself, although it easily could. Mm-hmm. You know, Kikuchi had a good start, but he's a little bit tough to trust. So now you're down to sort of three pitchers that you're trusting in the middle of your rotation, and one of those pitchers is Jose Barrios. Yeah. Uh, that's troubling. And the the left-handed thing, you know, Brandon Belt has come back, but it, he's got some wild luck on balls in play. Like, I don't think he's come back in a way that's super convincing either. So, you know, even if I believe that Vladdy will, will come around, which broadly speaking I do, I think Springer will be better than he's been. You know, I just look down this lineup and it's like, okay, I believe in Springer, Bo, Vladdy, and Chapman, and outside of that, you know, there are guys you can hope on, Varsho and Kirk in particular, but... It, the lineup feels a little bit short. The rotation feels outside of Gosman a little bit shaky, and the bullpen feels more fine than good. And this division is so strong. Like, if I had to guess what happens here, I'd guess that maybe they do sort of crawl their way back into it. And then, like you said, there's just this brutal end to the season. So I could, I mean, maybe I'm just conjuring a worst case scenario here, <laughs> but I can definitely imagine a world where they kind of get back to where they want to get to and then that final push to the end, they're just not quite good enough against these top, top, top teams. Uh, I, yeah, I think that I'm, yeah, I'm definitely less optimistic about this team than I was entering the season. And that's, you know, it's easy to say that because the record is what it is. It's not what you would want it to be. But I, I like to think of myself as a person who's like more reasonable, less taken by, you know, the fancy of the last three, four days in terms of the way it influences my thinking. But yeah, if you're asking about my gut feeling, my gut feeling is that this team's just not quite good enough, just not quite there. Yeah, like to think of yourself as reasonable, but conjuring up the worst case scenario, you are a damaged Toronto sports fan like the rest of us, I think, <laughs> is sort of how this uh, this plays out. Uh, that is Nick Ashbourne contributing at Sportsnet, contributing at Yahoo. Certainly the Blue Jays Happy Hour podcast is a can't miss every week. Uh, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for doing this. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Okay, there goes Nick Ashbourne. Really interesting stuff there. And it's just, baseball's a game of numbers, right? It always has been, whether you're into the analytics or not. Uh, you know, it's a 3-2 count with one down in the bottom of the ninth. It, like, everything about it is numbers. And so the pacing is what it is. We're a third of the way into the season now. And there's some alarming trends kind of kicking around the Blue Jays that maybe suggest they're not quite as good as they'd hoped to be and not quite as good as many of us had hoped. So uh, interesting to get Nick's take on all of it. But that is where we will wrap up this episode of the podcast. 
All the links we mentioned for Nick's work are in the show notes at TallCanAudio.com, so you can check that out. I highly recommend you do. Uh, give us a follow on social media at TallCanAudio on whatever social media apps you're on, except TikTok. We're not on TikTok. I, I don't get the TikTok thing. We're not doing that. Uh, but most other places, you can check us out there. Thank you so much for listening to episode 1122 of the Tall Can Audio Podcast. My name is Matt Robinson. See you next time. That's it. Not work under these conditions. If anybody wants me, I'll be downstairs at McDougal. Call the weekend guy. I don't care.